Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, May 5th, 2014. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network, the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember that our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today, you'll hear Nurse Vicky's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we've got another great show for you today that's going to include what lifestyle strategies treat depression as well as drugs or psychotherapy. What nutritional supplement can prevent colon cancer? And can be, being slim be harmful to your health? And what's the key to prevent and treat all chronic diseases? Wow, all of them, huh? Okay. And what delicious fruit can slow down cancer? No, a healthy lifestyle makes all the difference in the world as to how healthy we are, body, mind, emotion, and spirit. And several studies have just popped up about how lax lifestyle habits can affect our health, like how poor sleep leads to twice as many hospitalizations in patients with heart failure, and depression increases the risk of heart failure, and a healthy diet is just as effective in treating that depression as talk therapy. And then another study that was just published on diet shows that a pattern of eating junk food regularly is responsible for obesity and cognitive impairments. The UCLA study shows that junk food can be addicting and increase our appetite, leading to obesity, which in turn can cause fatigue, and in that order. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we're looking at lifestyle all the time as a really powerful way to manage our health, but yet... Our doctors are not trained much in lifestyle medicine, and we don't really focus much on lifestyle medicine. I mean, look at the way we live. We don't eat good food. We don't get enough sleep. We don't weigh what we should. We're under a lot of stress. We're exposed to a ton of environmental toxicities. And a lot of us don't have a purpose in life that really satisfies us. We've done, we've transgressed every one of those rules of lifestyle, and yet we're still alive, a lot of the time, suffering rather than enjoying the benefits of really good health of all of our uh, of our perspectives, body, mind, emotion, and spirit. So we wonder why so many people are depressed. Well, it's, I mean, if we're not well and we don't have values in life that are values that make us happy and bring us joy, what are we doing? And And we just go on doing that without thinking so much about what can I do to take responsibility myself rather than, What can the medical profession do to provide me with some kind of magic pill that will do it for me because I don't feel like it? And that's why so many people are on medications. And lifestyle is really where it is. There is no more powerful medicine across the board than lifestyle medicine to preserve health and to, to restore health back to where it should be. Well, one of these studies was talking about, you know, about the junk food Uh and how you can maybe get by with it every once in a while, you know, to eat a little junk food. For sure. But when you do, what happens when you do it all the time on a regular basis? It And it's really hard to reverse the damage and, and the effects from that. Well, that's really true. And we've known for some time that junk food is a real problem. And, and you know, years ago when we were talking about artificial sweeteners, this came up. And we talked about the rats that were fed artificial sweeteners as opposed to the ones that were fed just regular sugar. And it increased their appetite. It increased their appetite. It made them lazy and it made them fat. And we all sort of said, well, that wasn't a good study. We can't really believe it. 
And now another study has come out showing all this business on junk food and how important it is uh, to to not eat because it does so many bad things to us. Well, the thing about junk food is that there's little nutrition, if any, in mm-hmm. junk food. It's mm-hmm. almost like you could say it's it's fake food. It, it doesn't do much for our energy. I mean, it might give you a little boost for a short amount of time, but it's not the right kind of energy. It's highly processed. There's added sugar. It's bad fats. Yeah. Well, it, and a lot of it is empty calories, which is what you're talking about, meaning exactly. that the calories are there, but where's the nutrition? I mean, you look at something like white bread, and it has something like 24 things factored out of it during the processing. Four are put back in, or five are put back in, and they call it enriched. And what you really got there is food that's not providing you much in the way of nutritional content so that when you burn that food to make calories out of it, it's depleting your body of the minerals and nutrients and, and other things that it needs to be able to be healthy. So, you know, a person can end up being obese and malnourished. Absolutely. You know, generally, when we think of somebody that's malnourished, we think of somebody that's starving yeah. to death. And Yeah, well, that's actually the rule rather than the exception. I mean, most people who are overweight are malnourished. They're not. When we looked at the USDA studies that were done on tens of thousands of people on three occasions, they showed widespread deficiencies in people, and the population, for the most part, has been overweight for some time. You look at things like essential fatty acids, and 95% of the population is low, or of magnesium, or copper, or some of the other minerals that we need. There are widespread uh, uh, problems with nutrition when it comes to that. Well, and the other thing, besides obesity, it brings along cognitive impairment, so it's harder to focus and to think and to, to do well um, that way. But it also brings along with it other things like diabetes and fatigue and inflammation and heart disease and, well, that's right. and, and cancer even. Well, what was done is a study out of UCLA uh, that was published in a journal called Physiology and Behavior in April of 2010. So it's just a recent publication. And they studied 32 rats. They were on one of two diets uh, for about six months. The first diet was a standard rat diet that was a good diet from the point of view of what was in it. It was nutritious. And the second diet was highly processed. It was much lower quality and really fits in with what we call junk food. And those that were on uh, junk food after just three months were noticeably fatter than the ones that were on a good diet. Well, they also had a lot of large tumors. Well, after at towards the end of their life, which is obviously quite a bit shorter than ours because they don't live that long, that's true. They had that plus they were not very energetic. They were fat and lazy. And it's the diet that did that. It's not so much being overweight as it is the diet. So here we've got a really important study that's telling us that we need to pay attention to what we eat or it's going to lead to lots of problems that are more than just being overweight. Well, the other thing that healthy eating does is it prevents depression <laughs> just as much as like seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Well, they did a study on that that was very interesting. And, and what they did is, is they looked at and they published this out of the University of Pittsburgh and the University of Maryland in March of 2014 in a journal called Psychiatric Services. And basically what they used were people who were uh, trying to help people who were mildly depressed that were older. So they're just mildly depressed, so they knew there was a problem. But these were delivered by non-mental health professionals, not by psychologists or psychiatrists. And they compared that to people who counseled these people 
on diet and nutrition and what they should eat. And then what they found is basically basically the same thing, uh, that they both worked equally well. So diet turns out to be something that's really important. So when we look at uh, the 25% of older people who have mild depression, uh, over the next two years, a whole bunch of them are going to wind up getting uh, a problem with severe depression. And what they found was, when they looked at both arms of this study, that those people who had major depression uh, was about 9%, which is quite a bit different than the 25% who uh, were were mildly depressed at the time. So doing help by lay people to provide some kind of advice and, and mild psychotherapy compares very positively with people who are getting counseled to eat healthy food. And they remember, both matter. I remember not long ago, too, we, we talked about um, how exercise and just talking to your friends can also reduce depression. So if you put that together with a healthy diet... It's the way to and go. And we've talked about studies that have shown that antidepressants didn't really have... The same effect. That's um, right. The same more, benefits. more benefits than doing the natural therapies for yeah, the well, depression. This, these were study, the studies that came out of Duke about 10 or 15 years ago, Duke University Medical Center. And what they did is they found that exercise was as effective as taking Prozac uh, in a standard dose if you exercised about three times a week uh, with moderate, moderate exercise. And that at six months, those people who had done the exercise were more depression-free than the people who were taking the drugs. And the thing about being depressed is that people lose interest in what they used to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And the more depressed they are, the more they're at risk for things like heart failure because the exactly. depression triggers their stress hormones, and that leads to inflammation, and then that leads to, to arterial sclerosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when we're depressed, a lot of bad things happen to us. Not only do we not feel good, but our biochemistry changes in the way you just described. And what they found is that people who are mildly depressed, there's about a 5% increase in the risk for getting congestive heart failure, whereas those people who had heart disease uh, who were severely depressed increased their risk by about 40%. So the biochemical changes that we see put a big stress on the body uh, in a way where it ages quickly. And it really is pointing out a lot of what I call the relationship between higher self and the physical body. Because for me, as I've found, as I've practiced medicine longer and longer, that physical disease is the body's way of telling us about psycho-spiritual disease. So the body is doing us a service in many different ways uh, by making us ill as a tool to help us learn more about some of the problems we're having that we're not addressing. So it's it's really designed to help us, not to be something that's just punishing us. Well, back to lifestyle, too. You know, besides depression, poor sleep increases hospitalizations for heart failure also. Mm-hmm. And when you don't get enough sleep, that increases inflammation, and that increases your stress hormones, and so that leads to heart failure and, and more hospitalizations from that. Yeah, well... Uh, there was a, about 43% of people who have insomnia actually uh, have insomnia at the time they're discharged from the hospital. And even at one year, about 30% of them do. And as you said, uh, as soon as we have a problem with congestive heart failure and we're not sleeping, it's synergistic. 
and then the risk of developing heart failure because of all the things that are associated with it, all the 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 biochemistry that follows depression uh, that is a consequence of it causes inflammation and causes uh, development of arteriosclerosis. So, well, the other thing I think that happens when people are depressed, they're usually tired. They don't feel like doing anything. Right. They don't feel like, you know, eating Getting the right diet things. or exercising <laughs> either. And a lot of them that are depressed don't sleep well. Well, that's it's right. all it's all connected. Or some people do the comfort food thing, and then they eat, just eat junk. Well, I think a lot of this really is reflecting the state of our culture, or the lack of of culture in the that, that exists today in the U.S. Uh, we don't really have relationships that are strong like a hundred years ago when we lived in in rural America, and family was a, was a very strong unit, and uh, the the, the the towns that we lived in had only a few people, and we, we were like a village, and we supported one another. Different people did different things to support the community, and there was a strong relationship with the elders. Today, you don't see that so much. We see kids rebelling at a, at a younger age. We have a lot of latchkey kids that are uh, that when when they're growing up don't have role models that are healthy role models to, to follow. We have television sets that are setting those role models up, and that's, a lot of it is violent and not the kind of thing that you would really like to teach a kid. So what would you expect at end of life or during the, the, you know, the golden the years that are supposed to be our golden years? What would you expect in terms of relationships uh, to, to exist? They're not that good. And so a lot of people are dying alone, not at home, not with family, not with uh, 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 the, the sacred nature of what death is about. I mean, death is really probably the most exciting event in our life. It may be the most important one, too. It's that transition. What do you mean when you say exciting? Well, it's a big deal. A lot going on. You're changing from from one domain to another, one uh, reality to another. At least that's the thinking. And And that's a big deal. That should be done with grace, and it should be done with love. And we don't see that so much. And it's and a lot of that is because our lifestyles aren't like they used to be uh, when it comes to relationships. And it's not like we haven't progressed in some others. We have. And we're looking at materialism and power as the big things, you know, money as the big things that we equate with success. A hundred years ago, yeah, that was important, but it was nothing like the value of your friends and family. We need to go back to those because that is a lot of what life is about. We forget that. So we look at, at depression and wonder why so many people are depressed in their later years. I mean, so you get your gold watch at age 65 and you retire. You've had a job that you've had to do a lot of the time because it's a job that made you money and you could support your family and put your kids through college and do the other things that you wanted to do. But what happens at age 65? Now you wouldn't go play golf or tennis all day long? That's not going to happen in, in, in a way that's satisfying. So it's not unusual for people who are retired in that state to be depressed and to have all these things go wrong. Well, I'm thinking when you're talking about this, mm-hmm. they all need to go take cooking classes. Cooking classes. <laughs> that would be a good thing to do. And learn how to eat healthy. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> like our ancestors did, you know. I mean, if they're Well, going, they ate real food, whole foods. Yeah, they weren't so processed. Healthy foods and that are not genetically engineered well, and that, that are not pr- heavily processed and refined and all that. And, well, 
and uh, eating, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables that are not genetically engineered, whole foods, because it helps our energy, it it helps our focus, (laughs) it helps us to be healthier, it it increases our stamina. I mean, if you're going to eat meat, you know, at least try to eat a healthy meat that's grass-fed or... You know, organic and 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 seafood is getting so limited now. You know, now we're worried about the mercury from Fukushima, and and we're worried about, um, I mean, the radiation from that, mm-hmm. and then we're also worried about mercury. Things have gotten more complex. And, when we moved from the rural America, the small towns to the big cities, supplying food became a major issue, and you've got to give credit to the industry for wanting to do something that's a good thing. Yeah, but, but like some of the things that I see on Facebook about how they treat animals and like even eggs, you know, the way you don't even oh, really even want to know what they do to get the eggs. But if you can buy eggs at a farmer's market, that's the ideal way because eggs are actually a perfect food if they're organic. Absolutely. And, uh, and they're a lot different. Those from eggs from that are raised like that. From pastured eggs. chickens. Oh, they're a lot different from the eggs that we get at the, at the supermarkets. I mean, those eggs there often have been... Uh, stored for a couple of weeks rather than a fresh egg. When you get a fresh egg that the chicken has just laid, the shell is tougher. When you crack it, it sits up differently. It's not runny. Uh, it's And it tastes different. It's, and the color of the yolk is more orange. More orange. And, and the color of the shells is, is different, too. Well, another thing, too, are beans and rice. Together, that's a complete a protein. Sure. So those, those are healthy legumes. Well, diet's important. There's no question about that. We, but we still have to look at what happened. When we moved to the, to the city from the rural America, we had to supply food. And people who were in the food business were trying to do that for us. And they didn't realize how complicated food is. I mean, you look at something like a watermelon, and there are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of chemicals in it that are all put together by Mother Nature after we have existed with her for thousands and thousands of years. It takes a long time for the right foods to match the right person, to match people. But when you look at food products, I mean, things oxidize as soon as you cut them. It ruins most of the vitamins that are in there. If you look at a, at a head of broccoli, you cut that off, and two days later, it's lost 50% of its vitamin C. So it's not good to buy those broccoli crowns. Well, anything that's cut or opened or processed or refined is not going to be the same as something that looks like a banana or a squash or a tomato. Those are whole foods. If they look like foods, eat them. But if they don't look like foods, you're getting something that's processed that probably isn't in your best interest, particularly when you read the ingredients list and you don't know what the heck you're eating. Well, you know, a lot of these junk foods are really addictive. Oh, for you sure. Know, and this is another reason probably why, we why they cause overweight because they're, they're so um, addicting. Well. And I, I know actually not long ago we had a party and we had some really good kind of chips that were thick. And, <laughs> I know. And we started to eat. I thought, well, I'll just have a couple. Yeah, right. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'll just have a couple. Right. The next morning I bags, got up yeah. and I, I didn't sick. feel very good and no. I threw out the rest of it because I didn't even want it to be tempting us. Thank you. I wondered where they went even though I wanted them. I still wanted some <laughs> yeah, I <more>. threw them out. <laughs> All right. It's uh, it's time for uh, Vicki's 2020 tip. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Savitti here with Nurse Vicki. Her tip is going to be on homemade mosquito ant and flea repellent. And when we come back, we'll be talking about what nutritional supplement can prevent colon cancer. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I have a recipe here for homemade mosquito repellent that's also good for ants and for fleas. And it's free from chemicals that poison the body. First of all, what you need is about two cups of alcohol and a half a cup of whole cloves. Is that for us or is this for the... I know. <laughs> I, know I, I mean, saying... that might work too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it <just> tastes good. <laughs> and... Who cares if they bite me if I've had a, few, a, a little of your stuff? <laughs> and about three and a half ounces of an oil like an almond oil, a sesame oil, chamomile, lavender, fennel, a healthy oil like that. So you put those three things together, and you leave the cloves to marinate in the alcohol for four days. Wow. And then you stir it every morning and every night. And after the four days, that's when you add the uh, 3.4 ounces of the oil. And then it's ready to use. So what you do is you just gently rub a few drops under your skin, on your arms, your legs, or wherever you think you're going to be exposed and just watch those mosquitoes flee the room is that right and it repels fleas on your pets too so you can massage your pet with it and it sounds like it smells pretty good sounds good that's my tip for healthy tip for mosquitoes ants and fleas well that's a lot better than a lot of the things that we buy at the store you go to the pharmacy you're using stuff that's so toxic that if you put it on your skin the chances are that you're going to be putting things in your body that can cause problems that compromise detoxification. Not a good idea. So this is great. Thank you. So the importance of the bacteria in our GI tract is finally becoming more recognized by the medical community with more and more studies demonstrating how these 10 trillion bacteria are beneficial to our digestion, crowding out pathogenic or bad bacteria, reducing inflammation, promoting healing, and preventing the spread of infection, and even, even helping us to lose weight, among other things. Yeah. And now we have a study showing that the wrong bacteria in our gut may suppress DNA repair, altering colon cancer risk in people that are at risk. With 50,000 Americans dying from colorectal cancer every year, we're going to talk about the imbalance of good and bad gut bacteria and what this means as far as cancer growth. Yeah, it's come it's come full circle. You know, it was a guy named Metchnikoff about 100 years ago that got the idea that the microbes that live in the colon were really very important and actually made an organ. So stool we looked at as an organ from that time forward. But it didn't really catch on until about 10 years ago. I remember having a conversation with some of the gastroenterologists about 15 years ago saying how important I thought probiotics were and that they were really something that we should be using on patients in the hospital, particularly if they're on antibiotics or some other uh, something else that was suppressing growth in the intestinal tract. And they told me I was crazy and that, you know, that that wasn't really important. And now they're touting it, which I think is great because they're owning it themselves. It's sort of like they figured out it's good on their own, so they think, and so now it's theirs. But when you look at the gut microflora, that ecosystem is very complicated, and there's more there's more metabolic activity in the gut than there is in any organ system in the body. And there are 10 times as many microbes in the gut as there are cells in the body. And it needs to be balanced. Absolutely. And if it, it depends on a lot of things that determine what is going to live there. It depends on whether or not you're eating the right food or if certain foods are foods you can't tolerate right. Like, for example, if you're uh, lactose intolerant, you can't have dairy products because they give you diarrhea. Why does that happen? 
It's because you eat, you drink the milk or eat the dairy products. You put the milk sugar in there, but your body can't digest it. But guess what? Those microbes in there can. Some of them can. And when they do, they do it differently than we do. Then they make products because you make them grow and they have waste products that might be toxic. And that's what promotes the diarrhea, the cramps, the bloating, and all that system. So when we're looking at the ecosystem of the gut and its metabolic activity, it's got more metabolic activity than the brain or the kidney or the liver. I mean, it's stunning how much is going on there. And it's also stunning how much we interfere with it because Absolutely. a lot of medications. What are some of the medications besides antibiotics that, that Oh, the birth control them? pills, the NSAIDs, steroids. Uh, there, the list just goes on and on. But that's pretty impressive what you just said. Oh, for sure. And and when you're making a change like this, for example, say you're you're looking at a forest fire, okay, and you see this complex system of trees and plants being wiped out, you can't just go out and take a few redwood seeds and some uh, plant seeds and throw them around and think that you're going to create that ecosystem overnight. That may take a hundred years or longer to come back. The gut's not much different. You throw an antibiotic in there that wipes out all the friendly microbes and leaves what? Those resistant to the antibiotic only, you're going to see horrendous changes in the gut. And you're going to see different kinds of microbes overgrow that normally couldn't. Ones like yeast or some of the pathogenic bacteria uh, that could cause cholera or uh, other kinds of infections. Well, and then too, according to this article, the gut bacteria, when it changes, it can promote cancer and metastasis of the cancer. Well, that's It can right. change the lining of the colon. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all true. And when you see the ecosystem changing because certain microbes are overgrowing that can cause uh, changes in the ability of our DNA to repair itself, we've got a problem that we need to be dealing with and trying to reverse by using a probiotic, which is what? Those friendly microbes that should be living down there that were wiped out by the antibiotic or whatever other thing that we were doing, or maybe we got an infection, we need to replace them so that they can reestablish themselves and and do things like crowd out the bad bacteria that you were talking about. They detoxify carcinogens and complicated environmental toxins. They make vitamins. These bacteria make vitamins K, B5, B6, biotin, and butyrate. And they also have a lot to do with stimulating the immune system in a way that protects from getting autoimmune problems like hay fever, asthma, and and many of the other uh, autoimmune diseases we see, like thyroid and nervous system diseases. I bet most allergists don't go looking at the gut to No, they don't, but they should be. I mean, if somebody comes in and has asthma, the first thing I do is I get a stool sample. People are going, what? It's in my lungs, not not my belly. But when you look at how that works... I mean, studies came out of UCSF about 10 or 15 years ago, the Department of Pediatrics there, looking at the kinds of microbes uh, that were in the gut and what the relationship was from inhaling something like pollen, which some people would be having allergic reactions to and others not. Because they swallow it? Well, what happens is you inhale it and your lungs clean out your uh, everything that's in, in every 20 minutes. It goes to the back of your throat. You swallow it. Then it goes down into the gut where if you've got the lactobacillus or the acidophilus or the bifidobacter down there, 
that sends messages to the immune system, and two-thirds of the immune system is already present in the intestinal tract, two-thirds of the whole immune system of the body, when those bacteria are there, they're like sentinels. And they see pollen come down, they send out messengers to the immune system saying, cool it, it's only pollen, it's not going to hurt you, don't worry about it. But if something like a pseudomonas bacteria comes down, they send messages to the immune system and say, gear up, buddy, we got to attack these guys because they're going to attack us. If you don't have that system there because you've taken an antibiotic and you've wiped them out, you're at a bigger risk for developing things that are autoimmune, including things like asthma and hay fever. So oftentimes I'll treat people with what? If they have hay fever or asthma, a probiotic is the first thing. Interesting, isn't it? Also, if bacterial infected colon cells can't repair damage to their DNA, promoting cancer, does mm-hmm. this include diseases like ulcerative colitis? It probably does. I mean, we know the incidence of colon cancer goes way up in people who have, who have ulcerative colitis. And it's something that I, I start out with. Anybody who has a bowel problem, uh, I look at the, at, the, at the stool first and then look for leaky gut, which is a whole other story. If you want to learn about that, and it's really important to know about in medicine, in any autoimmune condition, go to drsubuta.com, put leaky gut in there, and it'll come right out. So anyway, for prevention, eat a lot of fiber and a healthy diet, exercise, Lifestyle, keep your yeah. weight good, stress reduction, vitamin D, get enough sleep, take your probiotics, mm-hmm. and not take drugs that can cause dysbiosis. <laughs> Stay away from those. That's right. <laughs> All right. It's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki, and we'll be right back with more Prescriptions for Health radio, and we'll be talking about can being slim be harmful to your health? My goodness, what we're learning about our health. Welcome back to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. We all want to be slim, don't we? Well, that's what a lot of people think is the best thing. I mean, remember when Twiggy was the big model? I don't that know what was a weighed. little more than slim, though. Yeah, that was that was like anorexia. You don't want that. <laughs> but how slim is healthy, you know? Mm. We hear so much about the health risks of being obese, but we don't hear very much about the risks of being underweight. Right. And now a new study finds that underweight people and fetuses are as at higher risk of dying as obese people. And the study compared uh, body mass index rates, which reflects body fat and muscle mass. Yeah. I mean, the whole business of weight is is one that's confusing because the literature is confusing. I remember the last article that we talked about people who were overweight and that were older, that they actually lived longer than people who were underweight uh, or had a normal life, uh, a, a normal weight. So those are all things that don't conform to what everybody has, has assumed because we've always assumed that people who are morbidly obese, for example, who are 100 pounds or more overweight, that their risk for having heart attacks and strokes and fractures and all these things goes up, and it does. But when you're looking at, at people who are just a little overweight, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that the, 
the way we look at it in medicine and the way the culture looks at beauty, it's more towards thinness by taste than yeah, it is in we actuality. Look at all, we look at all the fashion models in the magazines and every well, they look good and well, we all want to look we all want to look like that, you know, but some of the causes of of underweight are malnutrition mm-hmm. and heavy alcohol and drug use, mm-hmm. smoking, low income, mental health and poor self-care. Sure. And also I think some people just This is what they say anyway. They say, I have a high metabolism, Uh and so I just don't put on weight, Mm -hmm. you know? So just because somebody has a low weight or they're slim doesn't mean that they're in good shape because it might be from some of these other other reasons. Oh, for sure. I mean, look at the eating disorders that we have in this country. They they go from one end to the other. You can be a binge eater and be way overweight and a lot of people who are abused. No, the binge eaters usually aren't overweight because they go throw up. Well, those are the ones that have bulimia. But the ones that binge eat aren't. They get overweight and they may be 50 or 100 pounds overweight. So you look at people, uh, for example, who have been abused sexually, physically, or emotionally in childhood, a lot of them gain weight as a self-protective device so that they won't be so appealing and vulnerable to having more of the insults they had when they were growing up. I know up. you've told me that some of your patients have shared things like that. Oh, and, there's and a I, lot of And I know abuse. somebody I used to work with was like that. In fact, she even admitted it to me because mm-hmm. she was very attractive, but she was overweight, and she said that she just wanted the guys to leave her alone. Yeah, well, there was a study that was published in the Journal of Epidemiology and Public Health in March of this year. Uh, at 2014, it looked at 51 studies on the links between body mass index and deaths from any cause uh, in both newborns uh, as as well as, as people who were adults. And they found that adults who were underweight and had a, ba- a body mass index under 18.5, which means they're probably about 25, 20, 25 pounds underweight, have a 1.8 times higher risk of dying. That's almost a double the risk of dying than those people who have a normal body mass index. And when you look at people that are overweight, those that are overweight, maybe 25, 30 pounds, they're about 1.2 times higher than people uh, who have a normal weight. And those that are 100 pounds overweight, it's about 1.3 times higher than those that are, have a normal weight. So, Well, we want to have a little weight to fall back on if we do get sick. Yeah, but in this study, they didn't include people who were sick. They eliminated people with cancer or chronic lung disease or heart failure or other reasons for uh, being thin. These are just people. No, but I'm saying it's good to have a little bit of extra weight because if you do get sick, yeah. then, then you have something to fall back on. That's a good point. Uh, like, for example, mm-hmm. with cancer, I was talking to somebody recently that has cancer in his in his throat, mm-hmm. and um, he is set up now to get chemo and radiation and all that, and he's got about six weeks. So he's riding his bike, and he's trying to get in shape yeah, and, right. and eat eat more and you know, build up his weight because he's going to yeah, have trouble little, swallowing and there are lots of problems that go. Be sick. Once you're sick, gaining weight is a real problem. I mean, and, and there are some, I mean, look at the difference between thin people and people that are really overweight. Those people that are thin are more likely or have a better chance of being malnourished than those that eat too much. Even though a lot of the time people that are way overweight are eating foods that don't have a lot of nutrition in them, uh, people who are really thin probably have a less chance of having the nutrition their body needs 
to be able to function better. And they're just trying to keep their weight down. So right. a lot of times they're, they're not focusing on eating healthy. That's right. Which is why lately it seems like I've been hearing so much more on some of the nutrition programs mm-hmm. and things about eating healthy just mm-hmm. rather than eating low calorie. Oh, for sure. To eat healthy. Oh, I think that's right. And we've got this fat phobia. Well, we don't want to discourage obesity so much and emphasize weight loss so much that we go to the other extreme, like with eating well, disorders. Well, that happens. I mean, but, but look at the, at the fat phobia problem we have. Uh, we need fat. And there was a study we talked about just a couple of weeks ago that talked about the fact that there is no study that's been done that shows that eating healthy fats leads to heart disease or strokes. And that's a shock to most people because... The studies that we had the last 30, 40 years that talk about cholesterol and saturated fat all came to the conclusion uh, that, that that was a problem, but it wasn't based on any scientific data. That was based on assumptions that were made about it. So being a little overweight, better than being a little underweight. Uh, and by the way, you can be thin and still be fat, meaning that you have a low amount of muscle mass and a relatively high percentage of body fat. So you could still be that much worse if you're thin, if you have more fat than you have muscle, and you're, and you don't, and you're not in shape. There are many elderly uh, people that get what you call like wasting disease mm-hmm. that just start losing weight because they're old. That happened to my mom. She just kept losing and losing and losing weight. Well, I think when you get to the end of life, uh, that it's almost like a natural thing. I've seen that happen so many times where people can't eat because they have swallowing disorders or they, or they don't have an appetite or they're severely depressed. or There are lots of reasons why people don't eat. Maybe they've got cancer uh, and don't know it. I mean, so it's... They don't have an appetite. You don't have an appetite, yeah. And that leads to losing a lot of weight. And, of course, if you don't have the nutrition you need, how in the world are you ever going to be able to make energy, you know, the ATP that our body uses for fuel? How are you going to do that? And like when people are depressed. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. So we now have a test that's called a bioenergy test that Frank Schallenberger has brought forward. I've got to really hand it to Frank. He's a physician in Carson City, Nevada, that has brought this technology forward. And he wrote a wonderful article that we're going to talk about in the next section of this show that talks about uh, that you, you shouldn't get any disease ever if your body can use oxygen properly. So we'll be talking about that as well. So this whole business of, of weight is something that is built on uh, data that's not really scientific. A lot of it is about fashion. I mean, years ago, being a little overweight was more attractive. Back in the 15th century or so, being a little overweight was good. Uh, today, 20 years ago, being really thin was the thing. And now there's a, a, a movement to actually criticize that sort of thing so that we don't get in a position where we think that being thin is the way we should be. Well, even about the babies, you know, we were mentioning oh, about yeah. how, how fetuses are at a higher risk of dying if they're, if they're too too small. Oh, for sure. But I was talking to somebody that was pregnant the other day and she was telling me, oh, well, her mom told her that it was better to have a low weight fetus because it was easier to deliver it. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, hello. Yeah, not healthy for the baby. <laughs> not for yeah, Infant not mortality for goes way up for a lot of reasons when that happens. So uh, that, that's... Well, also think about it. The fat in your brain is a healthy thing. If you don't have fat in your brain, you're going to be malnourished for sure. It's, it's, uh, we, our brain is made of about 60% fat, uh, so that's, that's right. 
Okay, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Nurse Vicki's final 2020 tip on recipes for natural bathroom cleaners and air fresheners. And when we come back, we'll be talking about what's the key to preventing and treating all diseases and what delicious fruit can slow down cancer. Well, believe it or not, there are some natural, inexpensive, easy-to-make bathroom cleaners and air freshener. The first one I want to talk about is a bathroom cleaner for mold. All you need is a spray bottle and some hydrogen peroxide and water. And you just mix two parts of water with one part of hydrogen peroxide, and you just spray it on the moldy area, wait for an hour, and then wipe it away. Great. Well, mold needs to have... uh uh, lots of anaerobic conditions, which means no oxygen. So if you put hydrogen peroxide there, oxygen is going to be all over the place. You know, for a while I w- made a mistake and I was using this solution of hydrogen peroxide followed by a spray bottle of white vinegar, but I wasn't diluting them and it was like eating away at the grout. So be sure to dilute it the way that I just told you, two parts water with one part hydrogen peroxide. And so what was the smell of gin that I was smelling in the shower? Oh, that's that was vodka. Sometimes I use that. <laughs> You drink it before you do the spray or what? No, but usually what I use the vodka for is on furniture because, you know, cloth cloth furniture. Yeah, to disinfect it. Really? Yeah. So anyway, now I have um, one for toilets. Okay. Because toilets can be pretty gross. So all you have to do is pour one cup of vinegar in the toilet and let it sit for an hour. Then sprinkle a little baking soda on your toilet brush, scrub around the bowl, and voila, sparkling clean. (laughs) Right, Mrs. Clean here. That's it. Now I've got some tub and tile cleaner for you in the bathroom. You pour a half, actually you could use this in the kitchen too, but pour a half a cup of baking soda in a bowl and then just slowly add in some liquid soap, stirring it continuously Hmm. until it gets to like a smooth thickness. And then if you want, you could add a little scent to it, like five to ten drops of some essential lavender, tea tree, or rosemary oil. And then you apply that mixture to the tub or the tile. Just scoop it onto a sponge and scrub it and rinse. And there you go. All right. That's it. And then I have an all-natural air freshener. You just squeeze, because you know regular air fresheners with the fragrance are toxic. So just squeeze juice from a fresh lemon into a bowl half filled with baking soda and leave the dish uncovered in any room. Really? For several hours. How simple. That's it. It's like using baking soda for as a deodorant. I've been doing that for years. It's a little bit. I know. It works all day. It really works. It's terrific. So why are MDs ignoring the most accurate predictor for chronic disease and aging? Well, there's nothing as critical to our health as oxygen metabolism, and yet it's very rare that your MD will test it. Now, we're talking about how efficiently you use the oxygen, not how much you take in, what you use. So this means how efficiently your body uses oxygen will determine your health because all chronic diseases have problems with oxygen utilization. So how do we measure this and why is it important and how do we improve our utilization of the oxygen that we breathe? That's a good point. You know, a lot of the time we think that just because we're breathing in air that has lots lots of oxygen in it and our lungs are okay and our heart is pumping blood okay, that we're (laughs) pumping enough oxygen around for the body to use. And some of that's true, but the the mitochondria, those little energy packets that are in our cells that make about 50% of the cell up in some cases, that's how important energy is to a cell. Those they they re, they use oxygen, and they don't always do it efficiently. It depends on how good a shape you're in. It depends on whether or not you have an illness of some kind that affects energy production, as almost all diseases do. And so it, it really is saying this: 
if you have a, a unit of oxygen, you should be able to produce a unit of energy. But with if you take in a unit of oxygen and your mitochondria can only make a half a unit of energy, you're not very efficient at it. And that's what happens when we have diseases of almost any type. There's always a deficiency in oxygen efficiency when there's an illness, and that includes all the chronic diseases. Okay, so how do we measure it? Right. We do a test, okay, that, that measures that by measuring the amount of oxygen we consume and the amount of carbon dioxide that we exhale. And there's a machine to that... feed the plants. <laughs> well, that's right. And that's exactly what happens. The plants take in carbon dioxide and they make oxygen. So we have a cycle here where we use that oxygen and we make carbon dioxide for plants. So we have a system that should be sustaining itself. So the machine that we use is a special machine that measures that. It measures how much oxygen we're taking in and how much carbon dioxide we produce. And that ratio tells us a lot about how much is how many free radicals we're making as we make energy because as the mitochondria takes uh, product and it m- converts it into energy, what happens is it makes a certain amount of carbon dioxide. So what we have is a, a system that tells us how efficient we are depending on how much carbon dioxide we make. The more carbon dioxide we make, the less efficient the production of ATP, which is the energy currency of the cell from the mitochondria. It makes me think about when somebody hyperventilates mm-hmm. and they're not really getting in enough oxygen. Well, they're getting enough oxygen. They're oh, just they're getting- anxious. They're getting a lot. They're blowing off their CO2, their carbon dioxide. And when you do that, it makes you feel lightheaded and weak and your fingers may cramp and you feel tingly in your fingers and around your lips and toes. That's hyperventilation. And then why does breathing in a paper bag help? Because the carbon dioxide stays in the bag, and instead of blowing it off, it builds up. Then if you breathe fast, it doesn't blow all the carbon dioxide out of your body. So that's why the paper bag is a good trick there. So, you know, a lot of times when you hear about free radicals, you hear about taking antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Well, you could do that, but that's not, the, that's not the smartest thing to do. And actually, the body does that itself anyway. As we make more energy and do it inefficiently, meaning that we make more carbon dioxide as we burn oxygen as fuel, as we do that, it creates a situation where we don't make that that energy efficiently. And if we don't make it efficiently, then we're, we're defective in the way we process oxygen as a fuel to make ATP. So how do we improve our utilization of the oxygen that we breathe in? We have to get fit. I think that's the first thing. How do you get fit? Exercise. Well, exercise. So exercise is the most powerful anti-aging uh, medicine that we have. There's nothing that comes close. And it gets our, our mitochondria to use oxygen more efficiently. So you get a bigger bang from your buck from a unit of oxygen than you get a unit of energy as opposed to maybe half a unit of energy. So as you condition yourself, it gets easier for your mitochondria to make energy, which is what it's about. Well, it sounds like it's a good idea to do this bioenergy test for like a wake-up call or to reassure you that you are healthy. I mean, do you recommend that everybody do this or just certain people? I know in the past you've been sending people out of state to do this test because, like I said at the introduction to this part of the show, is that most doctors are ignoring this test. Well, they're so not just ignoring it. But you've been sending people out of state to do this. Yes. And 
and you think this test is so great that you just bought one of the tests so your patients can do it now in your office. I think everybody should do it, and they should track it over time because it tells you how healthy you are. If you're burn, if you're making energy efficiently, you're not going to be. You can't get sick. Something has to interfere with that process. So all the chronic diseases don't occur when we're using oxygen if, in an efficient way to make ATP. Boy, that's really a big statement. That's a huge statement. And so that's why we should track people and see how efficient their oxygen utilization is. And if it changes, know that something's wrong. And that tells us right then that we've got to do something to help people to, uh, to become more efficient in the way they use oxygen. Okay, let's quickly talk about some of the things that the bioenergy test shows besides your oxygen utilization, yeah, like for your thyroid sure, and so it, forth. Sure, it does a lot of things. Uh, the machine that we use, first of all, costs about $40,000, so it's it's a, it's an expensive machine. And the reason you really got this is a convenience for your patients so they don't oh. have to keep going out of state to find out this well, information. I was sending it to Frank Schallenberger, who wrote a wonderful article in uh, the, the Townsend letter of, of the May issue that's called No Disease Ever, Unlocking the Power of Oxygen. So it's thanks to Frank that this whole technology is being brought forward. So it measures thyroid function very accurately, much better than the blood test because it measures a basal metabolic rate. It also measures your, uh, ability, your, your pulmonary function testing. It does cardiac stress testing. And it, and it shows how conditioned you are when you exercise on a bike for about 15 minutes. It shows how efficiently your body is utilizing oxygen by formulas that are easy to use and computerized so anybody can do it. And it also measures your, your meta, me, metabolic rate, That's too, what I was right? saying with thyroid. That's right. So this is a great test. Well, so why doesn't insurance cover it, cover it if it's FDA approved? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. You know, a lot of things happen that way. Why don't they, why don't they approve infrared light therapy? Because or, the, it, or the breast thermography. Or breast th- well, they have approved uh, the breast thermography. The insurance but Actually, they've, they've actually also approved infrared light therapy as a heat lamp, but not, not to do the things yeah, that it Yeah, but I mean, does. so the FDA approves it, but then why doesn't insurance cover these things? Well, there's, there's a lot of politics that goes into that, and so there are conflicts of interest that all the time are involved with this that are at the congressional level and have to do with big pharma and the insurance industry. Okay, so, you know, we all want to avoid breast cancer. And if we have it, we want to prevent the spread. And most people dread conventional treatment with chemotherapy or radiation in an attempt to prevent spreading or metastasis while killing the healthy cells along with the malignant ones. But what if there were... Just visualize this, a delicious fruit (laughs) that inhibited the growth and the spread of aggressive breast cancers harming healthy cells without harming uh, healthy cells. That's right. And if you could eat two to three a day. Now, the good news is that there is such a fruit and it is... The peach. Peaches. (laughs) Yum, yum. What Mother Nature can do, and peaches aren't the only one. Studies have been done on plums, and God knows if we did studies on other vegetables and fruits, we'd find the same thing. Well, I was just reading something online the other day. I'm not quite sure how accurate it is, but it said a full ripe banana with dark patches on the yellow skin. Those are the ones I usually throw out or make banana bread with. It says they produce a substance called tumor necrosis factor, which has the ability to combat abnormal cells and the more darker the patches it has the higher 
will be its immunity enhancement quality. Well, so the riper the banana, the better the anti-cancer quality, according to this thing that I saw on, Okay, well, online. I wouldn't put too much stock in that one, but it's it's interesting to see that people are talking about stuff But we like also that. know that there's cruciferous vegetables and other foods and herbs that help oh, prevent sure. and heal cancers, like algae, sea vegetables, aloe vera, hemp, garlic, turmeric, even adding dark beer to marinade when you barbecue. Remember that one? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> So there are a lot of things that we can do as far as diet goes to, to help us out. But I think the peaches really sound, sound yummy. I really well, if you do, do like two or three peaches. peaches a day, and that's not really a surprise because there's been a lot of research that's been done on laetrile, okay, which is a modified form of amygdalin. Some people call it vitamin B17, and, and some people just call it amygdalin. Is that the apricot kernel? It what? is. It's exactly what it is, but it's also in the kernel of the peach, oh. okay, and also in almonds. Now, the FDA doesn't look at this as something, and the American Cancer Society doesn't look at this as something, and they kind of put it down. But it's interesting that there, is, there are clinics that use it and have, have, have treated twenty or 30,000 people over the past, I guess, 30 or 40 years. Of course, years. when you eat a peach, you're not eating the pit. No, you're not. That's right. But uh, when you eat the almond, you are. You're eating the, the pit of the almond. Right, that's what comes out when you. It's interesting. Some of them have a little different of a f- flavor, and mm-hmm. I've noticed like almond oil doesn't really smell like almonds. But mm-hmm. if you smell something like almond paste, it smells very strong of almond. Mm-hmm. But you know, previous work shows that um, these uh, polyphenols are what kill the breast cancer cells that are in the peach and the plums. But they don't affect normal cells, according to this. And one of the ways it may do it is by well, they talk about different ways of, of affecting DNA and allowing it to uh, modulate gene expression, and that's a good thing. But when you look at the amygdalin, which is in the same family as as the apricot, peach, and almond, you're looking at converting something in that pit to cyanide in cancer cells, which have an enzyme that can release the cyanide, but normal cells don't, according to the studies that uh, are talking about the use of, of amygdalin or uh, this other thing called laetrile. Well, just so you know, the type of peach that they used in the study was a variety called Rich Lady. <laughs> but they also found other peaches to share similar compounds. So okay, well, I think the answer here is to go plant a peach tree and share the peaches. Well, <laughs> I think, it, you know, things like this make a lot of sense, and they and they give you some hope that, that food is the right way to go. And I don't think there's any doubt that lifestyle, again, here is the most powerful way that we can prevent uh, getting any kind of disease, including cancer. We're at the end of the show and want to remind you that we'll be back to talk about what's new in the news and health the first and third Mondays of every month on prn.fm and drsabuta.com from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Prescriptions for health will also be available 24-7 on prn.fm. And if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the drsaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. 